This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. What does it look like to get an adequate public education? And what can we do if a state systematically fails to provide one to the kids in its community? The most important issue to us is that kids are able to learn and become a full version of themselves. That's you know the highest ideal of, of public education I think we should have. But the other part of it was the, the nitty gritty economic side was New Mexico will continue to suffer economically if it doesn't have students who are in the future prepared for work and education, higher education. New Mexico holds a unique place in U.S. history. It's a place where sovereign Pueblo nations have lived on the same land since before colonization by Europeans. But in this episode, we want to talk about New Mexico's present. New Mexicans are demanding that their state address the education system, which has not been preparing students for the future. The majority of New Mexico's students have been behind in reading and math by an average of three grade levels. But beyond that, the metrics are shockingly low for students who are low income, are English language learners, or are Native American. What do I mean by shocking? A New Mexico judge found that in recent years, only about 20% or fewer of low income and Native students were proficient in reading and math, and only about 5% of English language learners were considered proficient. And in the face of these outcomes, the state of New Mexico was reducing its budget for public education. When adjusted for inflation, New Mexico spent 8% less on education in 2014 than it did in 2008. For families and educators in New Mexico, it became just too much. They had to do something and they found a team of lawyers to help. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. The situation got so bad that two different education adequacy lawsuits were filed in 2014. Yazzie v. New Mexico by the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty, and Martinez versus New Mexico by the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, known as MALDEF. Their cases were consolidated, and they turned into a formidable team of around 20 attorneys, local and out-of-state, full-time civil rights lawyers, and pro bono volunteers. After five years of work and three months of actual trial, where the numbers I cited a moment ago were introduced into evidence— the New Mexico court issued a landmark decision that is laying the groundwork to transform public education in the state. 
Recently, we got three of those lawyers together to reflect on the experience and the impact of working on this case. Hi, my name is Ernest Herrera, and I am an attorney at the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. I'm based in Los Angeles, but I used to be in our San Antonio, Texas office, which covers a large region, the 5th and 10th circuits, including, of course, New Mexico. Hi, everyone. My name is Martin Estrada. I'm a partner at the law firm of Munger, Tolls & Olson in Los Angeles, and I live in Los Angeles, California. My name is Preston Sanchez. I'm from New Mexico, born and raised here in Albuquerque, and I work at the ACLU of New Mexico as the Indigenous Justice Attorney. Okay, so for those of you who are trying to keep track, Preston is a New Mexico attorney who has moved from the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty to the New Mexico ACLU. Ernest was originally in San Antonio, but has recently moved to the MALDEF office in Los Angeles. And Martin is from a Los Angeles law firm, but chose to do significant pro bono work in New Mexico. All clear now? Let's talk about the case. Preston, could you tell us a little bit about how your case, um, the Yazzie case, came to be? So I joined the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty in 2012. And at that time, I was working with our former legal director, um, Gail Evans, on a report on education in New Mexico and targeting some of the main issues impacting students. And some of the root causes that we identified through this report was, you know, a lack of funding, a lack of accountability, and concentrated poverty in, in, in many districts in New Mexico, especially the rural areas. And so this report put us in a place to sort of think about litigation as a tool to begin to address some of those problems. We filed a case in the district court in, in March of 2014. And you know, part of that was because we reached out to some of the school districts, and I, and I personally was um, involved with com- in communications with the Gallup School District, and you know that we we had these conversations back and forth about how bad public schools were, how bad the funding was, and that it was impacting their students. And so, if you're not familiar with New Mexico school districts, you know Gallup is one of the largest uh, geographically one of the largest districts in the state, and they serve about 12,000 students, but 9,000 of them or so are American Indian and predominantly from the Navajo nations. And so we decided to meet with the district superintendent, their administration, and their attorney to talk more intentionally about litigation. Eventually, you know, we we brought on other districts. So we represent six school districts total. It's worth pausing to take this in. Among the Yazzie and Martinez plaintiffs, there were more than 25 families, but also six school districts that were so fed up that they joined a lawsuit against the state to demand a better public education system. And so these districts are you know, a good sample of the small and geographically uh, rural areas of New Mexico. Most of these districts serve what, what the judge considered at-risk students who are English language learner students low-income students, students with disabilities, and Native American students. And we also represented five families that also come from different backgrounds. And we have students who we represent who are English language learner students who have been in English language learner program for well beyond the time that they should have been in that program, mostly because you know, the program wasn't designed to improve their English, you know, efficiently. And sometimes they don't exit and they actually actually will graduate high school never having been proficient in English. 
We have a, a lead family plaintiff, and her name is Wilhelmina Yazi, and she's an excellent person to talk to because she has such a you know unique perspective as a Navajo woman who lives in Gallup with her ch- children and her family, and having you know seen what education her son, who's a plaintiff in this case as well, has had to undergo as a result of attending you know Gallup public schools, and you know, the lack of bilingual and um, culturally relevant programs that are not available, even in a district like Gallup, where, you know, the majority of students are American Indian. And, you know, the the, the, the failures by the system to actually in, give him the skills that he needs to be sufficient. She actually put out a nice video, like seven minutes, that kind of highlights the things that she, she can talk about and, and what's been her experience in this case. So in that video, Wilhelmina says, I'm trying to do my part as a mother, but I'd also like the state to do their part for our children, with the education system to really engage and to keep our children a priority. It's a pretty reasonable request, especially when you consider the promises made in New Mexico's constitution and education laws, which recognize its responsibility to meet the needs of students. If you'd like to meet Wilhelmina Yazi and hear her story, you can find a link to her video interview on the Pursuing Justice website. But Native Americans weren't the only community struggling with the New Mexico school system. Latino families were also frustrated, and a group of them reached out to MALDEF for help. Ernest, I would love it if you could talk to me about the Martinez case and and give us just sort of a background about how it came to be that MALDEF decided to bring this case. I came in at MALDEF around 2013 and started working on mostly voting rights and education issues. Our program areas at MALDEF with impact litigation are voting rights, education equity, immigrants' rights, and access to justice. In about the fall of 2012, there was a group that contacted us called the Latino Education Task Force in New Mexico. We spoke with them about some of the needs facing students in New Mexico. The biggest issues were those facing low income and uh, English learner students. And we started to investigate what it might look like to do an education adequacy lawsuit. And we did that investigation for about two years or a little under two years. And we filed our lawsuit in April of 2014. And it was uh, quite a large lawsuit, a bit different than other school finance lawsuits that are brought. There's actually a long history of education litigation, and the focus of the legal claims has changed over the years. Some of you may have read San Antonio versus Rodriguez, the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court case, which held that poverty is not a suspect class and there is no fundamental right to an education under the U.S. Constitution. After Rodriguez, a new wave of cases raised claims that states unfairly allowed there to be less money per pupil in districts in poorer communities than in wealthy communities. Think of it as an argument that if school supplies cost a dollar, it's not okay to give a kid in a rich community a dollar fifty and a kid in a poor community fifty cents. In New Mexico, the Martinez case made a different kind of claim. 
pointing out that the New Mexico state constitution guarantees a free and sufficient education to all students, and state law makes specific promises to students of Hispanic descent and Native students. Instead of focusing on dollars spent per student, the Martinez plaintiffs asked the court to look at outcomes, to recognize that kids were not receiving an adequate education, and that was a violation of constitutional rights. Ours was not just about funding, but it was also about the programming that students receive, the resources that are given to students, and whether the state is making sure that districts provide proper programming and educational resources to students in each of those districts. And that was where we started in that year, 2014. The perspective we came from was New Mexico in its constitution and its history has a rich history of dealing with and honoring its full cultural heritage. And that includes Latinos, to put it broadly, and Native American students. To that end, one of the aspects of our case that I think was unique from other states' lawsuits that involve adequacy or school finance was that we brought in the provisions of the New Mexico Constitution that dealt with language and bilingual education, where every student is supposed to be able to be uh, to receive a, a, a bilingual education in English and Spanish. And this came from New Mexico's history of being brought in as a state where most of the inhabitants uh, at the time as a territory were either Spanish speaking or speaking uh, an indigenous language. That's kind of the, the beginning background. Remember the metrics I told you at the beginning? Around 5% of New Mexico's English language learners were performing at grade level in reading and math. 5%. In a state whose constitution promises perfect equality for students of Spanish descent. Literally, those are the words in the New Mexico Constitution. It's so serious that you can see why it was a pretty compelling case for private attorneys to get involved in. And several New Mexico attorneys did volunteer their time and their talents to this litigation. But the case also drew in a team from Munger, Tolls, and Olson in Los Angeles, led by one of their partners, Martin Estrada. So, Martin, could you tell us a little bit about your law practice? Sure. My law practice focuses on trials and complex litigation. I was formerly an assistant United States attorney for uh, about seven and a half years. So I do a fair amount of work in the area of investigations as well and um, dealing with major companies involved in business disputes, as well as investigations. And when it comes to trial, I'll come in uh, when the case is a few weeks away from trial and get ready for trial and, and take it through to the end. So how does a Los Angeles trial attorney get hooked up with a San Antonio Maldef attorney to litigate a very big impact case in New Mexico? It all really started with Tom Sines, who's the president of Maldef, who's based in Los Angeles. When I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2014 and went into private practice, I had lunch with Tom, and this was just after leaving. And one of the things he mentioned was he had this big lawsuit in New Mexico, and he'd love to get our help with this case if we'd be interested. 
And I left the meeting thinking that's really nice, but it's really pie in the sky. It sounds like a huge case and I'm just starting out in private practice and may not be the best thing to do right now. But then I started thinking about it and learning more about the case and learning more about the situation in New Mexico. Now, I had never been to New Mexico. As I mentioned, my family came up from Guatemala in the, in the 70s and based and went to New York for a little bit. And then we've been in California ever since. So I'd never set foot in New Mexico and didn't know much about it. But what I learned when I started doing the research is that New Mexico has the largest population percentage-wise of Latinos, Hispanics in the country. Also has one of the largest Native American populations in the country. And in terms of educational metrics, testing scores, uh, graduation rates, et cetera, it perpetually was at the bottom competing, not in a good way, but in a negative way with Mississippi for 50th in the country every year. And it really struck a chord with me seeing that, what a terrible situation we had in terms of the educational system in New Mexico and what New Mexico represents. Given its population, I really started to see it as a symbol for this country. It really represents the beautiful diversity of this country. And if we let New Mexico fail, then we all fail. And I felt it was important to, to get involved at that point. I spoke with some of my partners, they agreed, and then we were off to the races. I don't think we fully anticipated how much would, would ultimately be involved. We um, ended up taking over 150 depositions, all the attorneys involved. We had thousands of exhibits, hundreds of thousands of pages of discovery. And we had a trial that spanned three months in the summer of 2017. So it was a big undertaking. Yeah, I find it interesting that New Mexico forced a trial. A lot of impact cases um, will often get resolved by consent decree, especially when, frankly, when the numbers for education in New Mexico are as shocking and problematic as they are. What was it like to do that trial at any of the three of you? And if you can just identify who you are when you talk, like what what was that three-month trial taking testimony about whether or not New Mexico is educating kids or not? What was that like? This is Ernest. The case when I began working on it had been investigated by former MALDEF attorneys, David Inojosa and Marisa Bono. They had a lot of understanding of these issues from having worked on these issues in Texas and Colorado, but especially Texas. Um, so I began working on the case, uh, doing everything from just, you know, organizing document review to eventually working on depositions. By the time trial started, I had already done a good bit of trial work on other cases, but it was new in that it was such a huge case and such a long trial. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, we actually, there was another staff attorney and there was one in charge, Marisa Bono, and then there was another Maldef, former Maldef attorney who kind of switched out with me because I had been living in Santa Fe for like five weeks in trial. This is Martine. I'll say that I thought it was a phenomenal experience. We had a great judge, the late Judge Sarah Singleton, rest in peace. She was phenomenal. Had us working really hard, but she worked just as hard as we did in terms of understanding the issues, taking notes, resolving disputes among the parties. She was really fantastic. And then we had a great team. Ernest and Preston did a wonderful job. 
and we had other attorneys who did a great job in the case as well, really were committed to the case such that they were putting in the longest hours and doing uh, tremendous work to, to get up to speed to make sure we got the best result possible. And then I think our witnesses were also just a, a pleasure to have. These were really committed individuals. For instance, experts from all over the country came in. We have experts coming in from University of California at Berkeley, from New York, from University of California, San Diego, just all over the country to come in and explain that, yes, uh, even though these kids were suffering obstacles, including poverty, they could learn and they could achieve. And the academic research shows that. And that was a, a powerful response to what the state had always been saying, which is that essentially I called it a blame the victim strategy in terms of saying that poverty creates these problems and there's nothing to be done about it. Our experts countered that and countered it with hard data and uh, real research. So I thought it was a pleasure to, to have them as, as witnesses. We also had families testify, which was really powerful to have a father of children in the system testify in Spanish through a translator about how hard it was for his kids, how, how much he worked to do his best for his kids, but that the system had just failed them. It was really emotional testimony. And then we had the districts testify, and this was also really impactful testimony to hear from people who were on the ground, trying to teach, trying to do the best they could, explain that essentially they just couldn't do it. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the materials. They didn't have uh, what it would take to adequately teach these kids who are fully capable of learning and fully capable of achieving. So when you have those types of witnesses and people as dedicated as they were, for me, it's a pleasure to try a case like that. This is Preston. You know, for me personally, this was my first lawsuit, my first case as an attorney. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, this was my first <laughs> trial. This was my first experience taking a deposition. It was the first time I ever did a direct examination of an expert witness. First time I ever cross-examined an expert from the defendant's side. First time I ever took any sort of testimony or directed the testimony of any of our witnesses. And so I was anxious. I was nervous, you know, that, that I was going to let us down or it was going to do something that wasn't, you know, within the confines of what we're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, I had a lot of anxiety about like what I was doing, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, trying to like also look like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Preston, my heart is pounding for you retroactively. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And this is Martine. We had no idea because Preston performed so well. I had no idea that this was his first time doing it. He's, he's being kind. It had to do with the teamwork, you know, the two teams working together and a, a magnificent judge, pour a little out for Judge Sarah Singleton, who was amazing and alert and, you know, just very smart and knew how to, you know, could read the room very well and understood the claims that we were making without being too technical in a lot of ways. This is Ernest. One thing I wanted to add, too, is leading up to the trial... I'm sure most attorneys and most listeners know better, but uh, a lot of the stories in the news when you see impact litigation are you do a lot of work on the front ends, you get a really good complaint, you get a really good preliminary injunction motion, and you get your PI and you go up on appeal and you do the awesome oral arguments in the courts of the circuit and then the Supreme Court. And that's often what we see, I think, in the news. 
in this case, uh, this one was, was a long slog. And I mean, I, I'm glad for the experience. Martin and I have now been working together for about five years. <laughs> and Great this earnest. one was, we, we talked about the witnesses who were appeared at trial. There were, not all of them appeared at trial. I think 30 or 40 testified at trial. We had, I believe, 90 witnesses. So about 90 depositions. And for talking about the, the pro bono aspect of it, the Munger Tolls and Olson attorneys were there for, for many of those depositions and, and often taking them alone. Ernest mentioned other Munger Tolls Olson lawyers. So like how how many lawyers from your firm? How how much resources did you all commit to this project? It was a lot. <laughs> sure, it was a lot. We had um, different teams. It was me and uh, different teams of associates at various points in the litigation. All together, it was probably about seven different associates who were on the case at different points in time. And I think that's another thing for, for the associates. It wasn't a hard sell to get them involved in this case. And when associates at our firm take on cases like this, it's not like their other work goes away. They're taking this on in addition to their already very full plates. But it, I had to turn people away on a case like this. When, when people saw the, the work we were doing, who we were working with, that's another important thing to have committed pro bono partners uh, like the Center for Law and Poverty and like MALDEF. When they saw that, they were dying to get involved in the case and committed themselves to it, dedicated themselves to it, and provided you know, top work product. 90 depositions, three months of trial, a long slog, as Ernest put it. What came out in the evidence? What were they able to show the court about education in New Mexico? And what was the impact on the lawyers themselves? I think what was most important, though, for me going in and to have the strength and sort of be bold about what I was doing was because I was doing it on behalf of you know, New Mexico children for, for the most part. But, you know, my, my role in this whole case was to really direct the issues pertaining to American Indian people. And so for the first time in any court history, as far as I understand, you know, this was the first time that a court would listen to the testimony of an expert witness uh, and a couple of expert witnesses, but uh, an Indian education expert who could really paint the history of forced assimilation, the boarding school era that all began in the late 1890s and 1880s, 1890s, and then, you know, sort of carrying forward into the 1940s and 50s and having a different sort of policy in place known as the termination policy. And, you know, all of these efforts by the federal government to terminate the existence of American Indian people using the education system as that, as that weapon. And how that history has had a current impact on American Indian people today and how it's created this disconnect between tribal communities and public schools and, you know, and how public schools have never fully respected or incorporated the cultural and linguistic needs of children in a way that's meaningful and the way that's going to affect, uh, that's going to impact students in a, in a positive way. If you're not familiar with the history of American Indian boarding schools, it was a U.S. program whose goals are best summed up by a phrase from one of the architects of the boarding school system, who said, kill the Indian, save the man. 
You can learn more by reading and listening to the resources available on our podcast webpage. But the short version is this. Public school for Native children used to mean boarding schools, designed to cut kids off from their family, culture, language, religion, and indigenous identity. Overcoming that legacy of forced assimilation requires special attention. At the Yazzie Martinez trial, the court did pay attention and heard evidence about families' needs in order to move past that traumatic legacy. It was very clear that, you know, despite the fact that we have a New Mexico Indian Education Act, a Bilingual Multicultural Education Act, uh, and a Hispanic Education Act, that those laws were not being implemented or enforced or funded, you know, in the way that they were intended to be. And as a result, you saw students who, you know, Native American students in this case, who were falling behind all other student demographic groups. And with that sort of as the backdrop, we, we made the argument at the end of the day that the Indian Education Act is, is a constitutional requirement given the history of forced assimilation, you know, and how poorly students were doing and what the intent of the state legislative piece, this Indian Education Act was intended to do was to increase academic outcomes for Native children by creating a culturally relevant and responsive education system. And so for me, this whole trial was a life changer. It, it really did change who I am and, and what I'm doing now as an Indigenous justice attorney at the ACLU. So it, it, it means a lot. What else did the plaintiff's lawyers learn from all that discovery and evidence at trial? So we had done uh, uh, school finance cases in Texas and Colorado, which were about an unequal distribution of money that ultimately would end up in uh, worse outcomes for Latino students. In New Mexico, it was not about equality among the districts, but it was about just adequacy of funding and, and provisions. As, as bad as things had been in Texas, in New Mexico, what we saw was that the state, and you, you'll see in the findings of fact, that the state's uh, leaders on English learner education did not even have the right tracking and did not even know what was going on in some districts with regard to English learner education. So they did not even know what programming was being provided uh, in terms of English language development uh, and bilingual education to many of the state's students. And this is large swaths of students. And as Preston said, there were laws like the Bilingual Multicultural Education Act that had been passed, but not really followed through on. Uh, these promises were not fulfilled before, and now we were making sure that they were. Another, another thing to add would be that the state's defense in their opening statement at trial was essentially, you know what, this is way too hard. We're going to do our best. All we need to give students is the classroom, the building, and the teacher. And that's all we're responsible for as the state. The students, we, we have to take them as we receive them. And, you know, some students are just not going to do well. And <laughs> that was the attitude we were working with and, and up against at trial. Oh, my goodness. And, and an interesting dynamic on that point, as Ernest mentioned, is there was a tension between the two main lines of defense. Because one of the lines of defense, as Ernest mentioned, is, you know, we're dealing with poor kids. We just can't do anything. And when you have poor kids, you're just going to have issues with education and you're going to have an achievement gap. And that's what the defense's experts said. And these were experts, well-credentialed experts from Stanford, George Mason universities. But there was a problem in that 
the Department of Education and the staff there, who many of whom were lifetime educators and had done that their entire lives, gave testimony in depositions and at trial that contradicted that. So for instance, the then acting Secretary of Education had published statements saying that reforms work, that they had all these reforms in place and that those reforms are going to work, just give us more time. And the Deputy Secretary of Education, who uh, I cross-examined in his deposition and at trial, said that economically disadvantaged students can achieve at the same rate as other students. He agreed with that. He thought that poverty was not an excuse. So the two lines of defense conflicted with each other, and we were able to use that both in arguments and also the post-trial briefing to convince the court that this attempted excuse of poverty, you know, we, we take them as they come and we just can't do anything about it. Essentially, as I like to call it, the blame the victim strategy, mm-hmm. but that just wasn't legally viable. So the court heard the state's two arguments. First, that these kids can't perform well in school ever, but also that these kids can perform but the state just needs more time. Then the court saw that in the face of terrible educational outcomes, New Mexico's investment in education was shrinking. Well, you can see why in July 2018, the Honorable Sarah Singleton issued a decision finding that New Mexico was violating the constitutional rights of the plaintiffs and failing to provide an adequate education to students. You may have noticed in the interviews the lawyer's deep admiration for Judge Singleton. And she's a really interesting person, a leader in New Mexico, someone who won the American Bar Association's Pro Bono Award in 2008 and has been described as demanding but fair and unpretentious. We wish we could interview her, too, but she passed in July 2019. In fact, she actually retired from the bench in 2017, but continued to preside over the Yazzie Martinez case. Her commitment to seeing the case through is obvious if you read the decision. It's a clearly written, highly readable 76-page decision. And when I was done with it, I felt like I'd completed a mini course in education adequacy litigation and the landscape of education in New Mexico. Honestly, I recommend it. You can find a link to the decision on the podcast webpage. I would love to hear about kind of what has been the impact of this case. You got a phenomenal decision from the judge, and that decision came down in 2018. So what has happened on the adequacy and access to education for New Mexico students since then? I'll take a step back and just say that. This case has really lit a fire in New Mexico. You know, it's more than just the impact on the education system per se, as much as it has had an impact on the minds and hearts of New Mexico people. This is the equivalent of the Brown v. Board versus education case from, you know, from the 1950s, but at the New Mexico level because of, you know, the ruling by the judge that schools, uh, public education is unconstitutionally or constitutionally insufficient, but also it has such this huge dynamic about the importance and significance of culture and language as it pertains to the education of children. And, you know, as a result, you know, people have from all four corners of this state come together to enforce that. 
from prior to the decision in 2018, you know, we, we started from the ground up working with our experts, working with the districts, pulling together strong minds to, to come to the table, to begin developing a coalition of people who have an interest or a stake in education in New Mexico. So we have a coalition now, it's called the Transform Education New Mexico Coalition. And, you know, they've been working diligently since 2018 till now. And based on the name of the coalition itself, Transform Education in Mexico, that's literally what it's going to take to make the changes that will lead to long lasting impact for students. And transformation includes not just funding, not just accountability, not just more teachers, but, you know, really emphasizing the need for culturally and linguistically responsive educational programs, you know, ensuring that there's accountability for what types of programs are being provided at the school level. And I think the Transform Coalition is going to continue to push for the recommendations that they know need to be enforced. And the legal team, our Yazi and Martinez legal teams, will continue to push the litigation that we know needs to happen, you know, when the state fails to do exactly what was required of it by the judge's decision and order. Anything that either one of you would like to share about the families that participated as the um, as the plaintiffs in this case? What has been the impact on them of participating and getting this decision? As far as our families, uh, the impact of this case, I think when it's when speaking to our families, so we have a couple of families who are Latino and also have children um, with learning disabilities, and they saw some initial progress in the in the last year or so. Uh, before COVID hit, but because of COVID, you get less teacher FaceTime. You you see fewer teachers throughout the day than you would if you were there in person. So that has been one of the setbacks after getting some initial progress for especially for our students with disabilities. So I think we're still some of the results are still yet to be seen. But I think one of the other positive impacts is that especially in in, in some of the districts is that so one of the groups that MALDEF works with and, and kind of brought us some of the information before we filed the case was the Latino Education Task Force in Albuquerque. And they work, they're kind of a network of former teachers, current teachers, administrators who are concerned about the needs of Latino students. One of the people who's involved, her, her granddaughter was a client, uh, one of our clients, and, you know, it's made her granddaughter very aware of the achievement gaps. It's made her granddaughter aware of these achievement gaps that exist. And for other families, for other students who were in school while this case was going on, um, the Latino Education Task Force has let us know that some of these people who are graduating high school as this case was going on have now become activists. Uh. They want to get involved in either education or in politics in New Mexico to make sure that this changes. So I think that underscores the some of the positive and negative impacts, but also how this is a fight that's bigger than just us as the lawyers or even the client families, the plaintiff families. And this is one that will probably go on for a little while. And we hope to see more change for students in New Mexico. Martin. And this was not the first big trial that you had done by a long shot, but this is the first, I think, pro bono case that was an impact case that has gone on for years and years. If another attorney came to you and was considering taking on their first big, potentially long-term impact case, what would you say to them to persuade them it's a good idea? 
What I would tell them is these cases can have such a tremendous impact and do such good in our communities, and they can have an effect that's just lasting well beyond whatever time commitment you put into it, whether it be a few months or a few years, what you're going to be able to achieve through the litigation is going to have a lasting impact on communities. And I would also say it's it's part of our duty doing this pro bono work. Certainly at my firm, Munger Tools and Olson, we believe pro bono is critical. And it's certainly critical to each individual. I think you get a lot of satisfaction out of doing these types of cases. But it's also something that's critical to the profession, something that we just need to do as lawyers, uh, giving back to our communities, giving back to those in need. And it's actually something that Judge Singleton stressed at various points during the trial, during breaks, and even at the very end of the trial, she stressed how important it was to have pro bono lawyers doing this type of work. Here are the judge's actual words from the court record. To the pro bono lawyers, I want to give a special word of appreciation and I hope you will express this to your firms. Our code, our creed of professionalism, says that lawyers are to be committed to their contribution of voluntary and uncompensated time for persons who cannot afford adequate legal assistance and to the improvement of the administration of justice and to civic influence. And I think that you all have exhibited this quality of being a professional and of being a good lawyer to an unprecedented degree in my experience. So I want to thank you and your law firms for allowing you to do that. I have to say, I agree with Judge Singleton. These three lawyers, Preston, Ernest, and Martine, do represent the best of our profession. If you want to hear more about their path to becoming lawyers, we've put together a bonus episode that takes a deeper dive into their own experiences before coming together on the Yazzie Martinez cases and she valued it. She thought it was important, and she wanted me to take that message back to my law firm, which I certainly did. That, that type of recognition by Judge Singleton, I think, really encompasses why people should do this. It's something that we owe as lawyers, we owe to others, and we owe to the profession. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.